In this five weeks uh, leading up to Easter, it's a perfect time for us to do something that uh, if you, will probably blow your mind. Um, so throughout history, uh, there have been lots of erroneous approach, approaches to Scripture. Most of the battlegrounds have centered on whether the Bible is accurate and true, right? Because if we don't have the Scripture, if we don't have the Bible, if it's not really true and accurate, then we have nothing. So many religions say that they believe in the Bible. You may not know this, but <clears throat> the simplest way to find out whether they're a false religion is to identify their source of authority on matters of truth. So let me give some examples. In Islam, their authority is the teachings of Muhammad in the Quran and the teachings of the Old Testament, which they accept. And they actually believe Jesus is a prophet. So they believe the New Testament things about Jesus, even though they think he's only a prophet and obviously they don't believe he's the son of God. Uh, Mormonism has the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, the Doctrines and Covenants, and the Bible, with, of course, their own version, uh, where they've tinkered with some important uh, issues to make the Bible more like the uh, Book of Mormon than like the Bible. Again, so what you're seeing here is the sources of authority are the Bible plus something else. Jehovah's Witnesses, they have two sources of authority, the Watchtower, which is considered to be accurate, inspired, and prophetic, and the Bible, and of course it's their version. And again there, they've made lots and lots of uh, corrections to the text uh, for their own theological purposes. Uh, in Catholicism, which is clearly uh, a historic Christian uh, 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 part of Christianity, um, they have the, um, the great challenge that they consider the Bible and tradition to be authoritative. And some even say that the Bible and tradition are equally authoritative. Not all. Uh, that certainly wouldn't be true of all uh, Catholic leaders or Catholic theologians. But they believe that both of those are a source of authority, Bible and tradition. Uh, and Protestantism, as you know, one of the two major features of Protestantism that, that, that uh, was the protest to get out of Roman Catholicism uh, is that uh, the scripture is the only ultimate source of authority for truth, as we'll see, supposedly. <laughs> uh, Protestants say that while church tradition is informative and useful and helpful, uh, all Protestants will say that church tradition is not authoritative. Um, we say that our sole source of authority is the scripture. It may be informed by things like reason uh, and tradition and uh, experience, but that's only informing how you interpret scripture. It is not authoritative. Only the scripture is inerrant. Only the scripture is inspired, uh, spirit inspired. Um, so in the weeks uh, leading to Easter, we're going to study an issue about which the Protestant tradition and scripture actually teach very different things. Uh, and this is going to show how tightly even Protestants can hold to, tra to tradition. We're also going to see that clinging to tradition has a potential to compromise our ability to show others that Jesus is the Messiah. It actually can compromise the faith. So the way we're going to do this is by studying two sets of messianic prophecies, prophecies about Messiah, right? Uh, the two will be the Passover lamb prophecies and the sign of Jonah. And we're going to find that, uh, that one of our most beloved traditions is wrong if the scripture is right. It's the tr tradition of Good Friday, 
Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. All of the events of Good Friday did, in fact, happen exactly has been taught by the church for centuries. But here's the problem. The events didn't happen on Friday. They happened on Thursday. Now, at this point, some of you may be saying, oh, that's ridiculous because the church would never have gotten something that important wrong. Or some may be saying, who cares? That, that's not the point. The point's the resurrection, the, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Um, but as we'll see, those who believe that Jesus is the Christ ought to care about this a lot. So we begin in the Torah, turn uh, in your scriptures. Again, ho hopefully you have your uh, e-scriptures or your actual Bible with you. You always should because we always do a huge amount of, uh, of the text one way or the other. And we're going to look in the Torah, right? The Torah being the first, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, uh, written mostly and probably compiled by Moses. Um, and in Exodus chapter 12, <coughs> Exodus is the second book in the Bible, turn there with me. Exodus chapter 12, look with me at verses 1 through 6. Right now, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron on the land uh, uh, on the land in the land of Egypt, "This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves." You can see the Passover prophecies and the Passover uh, commandment uh, here. Take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old, that you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And, verse 6, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. So, during the weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to see the incredible messianic implications of this passage. And as we begin, I want us to notice something that some translations render the terms related to the Passover lamb in verses five and six in the plural, for instance, the NIV. But the King James and the New American Standard correctly render the passage in the singular. Thus, it keeps its prophetic meaning. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse five again. Verse five, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, verse six, and you shall keep it. Interesting. NIV and many others put them, because it's talking, of course, about over, over all the years, millions of Passover lambs, right? But it, the, here's the actual Hebrew, Hebrew text. And you shall take keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Even though this prophecy was so clearly stated, it, was, it wasn't understood by Israel. So here are the key concepts that flow from this passage. Key concept number one, here's your first blank this evening. Write it in. One day there would be one lamb, the lamb. See, this lamb would be the true fulfillment of God's salvation plan that was symbolically th shown through all of the lambs 
in the Passover all of the years before the one true lamb came. So for us, this is easy to see, right? Since we live after the cross, we understand that the Passover has the same perspective that John the Baptist saw when he met Jesus. You know this from John chapter 1 well. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As soon as he said, the Lamb of God, all of the Jewish people would understand. He was talking Passover language. (coughs) So here comes key concept number two. This Exodus passage also makes it clear, ready, this one Passover lamb would be sacrificed by the whole assembly of Israel. This prophecy was fulfilled as well. Listen from Matthew 27 to what Jesus said. Pilate said to the Jews, this is about Jesus, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And you ready? (coughs) The whole assembly, ready? They all said, let him be crucified. So there's that key concept number two, right? The one Passover lamb would be sacrificed by the whole assembly of Israel. And there is Pilate saying, what shall I do? And they all said, crucify him. So let's see how Jesus fits the prophecy of the Passover lamb. To begin, we need to identify when Jesus was declared to be the Messiah by Israel, right? When he was, when he was, that's it. He's the one. This actually only happened one time. You know it well from Matthew 21. Look at, look at this. The crowds were going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. This is Palm Sunday. This is the triumphal entry of Jesus. This is where he's on a donkey, uh, a young donkey, and they are throwing down the palms and notice what they are saying. Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Here, they hailed Jesus as the son of David in Israel. And in Israel, this is a very specific messianic term. That meant they were saying, he's the Messiah. He's the one. He is the Christ. So now we need to answer four important questions. We're setting up again how all of this Good Friday versus Thursday crucifixion is incredibly important and has meaning. Question number one, when was Jesus declared Messiah by Israel? The answer is, here it is, on Palm Sunday, the day of the triumphal entry. It says, all of them there said, this is the son of David, glory to God, our Messiah has come. Question number two, what was the date of the triumphal entry? Now, we're going to work out these details over the next five weeks, the details of this timing, but for right now, just write it in. Again, I'll come back to the justification for this date, but it was April 6th, AD 32. April 6th, AD 32. So this was the day that Jesus went public. It was the first time that he was openly identified and observed, that's an important term as you'll see in a minute, and observed by the nation of Israel. And question number three, here it is. What day was April 6th, AD 32 on the Julian calendar, which is the one that we we use, you may not know that, but um, what was the day of April 6th, AD 32 on the Hebrew calendar? And here's, here's your answer. Nisan, that's the month, the first month of the Hebrew year, Nisan 10. 
That's the 10th day of the first month on the Hebrew calendar. But what's so special about that day? Well, you're still in Exodus chapter 12. Look back at verse 2 of Exodus chapter 12. This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Nisan, right? The month Nisan, ready? Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, Nisan 10, the 10th of this month, they shall eat one to each one take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. So, question number four. What was so special about Nissan 10? So write it in. Here's the blanks. It was the day that Passover lambs were taken out of the flock and were kept for four days. This is important. Kept for four days of observation to be certain that they were without blemish. Right? As you're leading up to the Passover feast, you can't use a blemished lamb. They have to be perfect. No bones broken, nothing wrong with them. They aren't sick. And they actually, from Nissan 10 until Nissan 14, did an observation to make sure that the lambs that they had pulled out when they were going to choose the one lamb, that it was absolutely unblemished and well and whole. Now, many Christians have never understood the prophetic significance of Palm Sunday. We tend to think of this day as the day Jesus just happened to show up in Jerusalem. But the fact is, this precise timing had been foretold by Moses, and Jesus was presenting himself to Israel, think about this, as the sacrificial lamb at the exact time that he had to, to meet the prophecy. So feature this. Go back more than 2,000 years, or almost 2,000 years to AD 32, and notice, here's, how could they have missed it? We all just went into the city and we, we all just declared this one, the son of David, blessed is, is the name of the Lord. <coughs> there he is. Oh, hey, honey, we got to run home real fast because we got to go take our lambs out of the flock to put them together to identify an unblemished one four days from now so that it can be sacrificed for the, our sins. It's just incredible to think about this, this linkage, and we're going to see in the next five weeks the stunning realities that this, this gives us. So, so now we're going to go through the timing of Passion Week, and then we're going to come back and see why it's so incredibly important. By the way, uh, here's the, here's the uh, link, and uh, hopefully you've already gotten it emailed to you, um, but it's going to be really important that you have the grid uh, that I'll show you uh, in a moment, the, the timing grid of Passion Week. So make sure you uh, print out your, uh, your materials so you'll be able to track along. So um, let's go back to what had been happening in the life of Jesus leading up to the Passion Week. For some time, Jesus had been avoiding Jerusalem because the rabbis were seeking to kill him. You probably remember that repeatedly in all of the Gospels. In fact, he had repeatedly told people not to declare him the Messiah before this time. On numerous occasions, think about it, he healed people, and they, of course, would have wanted to go saying, oh my goodness, he's God, this is the Messiah, he's healed me, he's, I used to be blind, right? And what would he say? He would say, don't tell anyone. But now, instead, here is all Israel declaring him to be the son of David, the Messiah, and he remains in the vicinity at night, and each of the four days is in Jerusalem 
being observed, teaching, showing the perfection of his teaching of the word, all of those things. So notice on numerous occasions, he's, he's presenting himself to be observed. It is as if he's placing himself on display before Israel during those particular four days. Think about it. They're observing him. And when they go home, they're observing their lamb to see if the lamb is perfect. So then four days after the, uh, they've been observed in Israel, the lambs, on Wednesday night, after sundown, Jesus was arrested. The next afternoon, on Nisan 14, Thursday, Jesus was crucified, exactly when the Passover lamb was supposed to be slain, according to Exodus 12, 6. So, that, so what was the date and the day? We're gonna, I'm going to be tonight dealing with the dilemmas uh, that set up really the next uh, month worth of teaching, right? So the date and the day in that year, here's your blank, in that year, A.D. 32, Nissan 14 was on Thursday. Nissan 14 was on Thursday. So as they had done for 1,400 years, all the way since Moses, in the hours before sunset on Nissan 14, the Passover lambs would be slain all over Israel, and you're ready? And the Passover lamb would also be slain, exactly as Moses had prophesied in Exodus 12:6. That's right. Thursday afternoon, Jesus was crucified. Everything was coming together exactly as God had foretold through the prophets. And through this fulfillment, Jesus was proven to be the Christ. But here's a major problem. Here's your next set of blanks. Here's a major problem. Church tradition teaches that Jesus was crucified on Friday, Nissan 15, not Thursday, Nissan 14. Thus, church tradition teaches that Jesus was slain on the day after all the rest of the lambs were sacrificed. So here's the church's huge Passover issue. You ready? Here's your blanks. Church tradition teaches that Jesus was not slain when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed according to the law that year, Thursday, right? Church tradition teaches it wasn't that day, but it was the day after the Passover meal was over, the night before. So if this weren't bad enough, there's another problem. It's called the sign of Jonah. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, Matthew being the first gospel. Matthew chapter 12, turn there with me. And um, here, <coughs> we're going to see a very interesting interaction between the scribes and Pharisees and Jesus when they're, they're wanting him to show a big old sign, right? They're wanting him to, to you know, throw the mountain into the, into the sea or do something really incredible, right? Or use his, his laser eyes. They're wanting him to do a Superman kind of thing, right? So look at this, chapter 12, verse 38 then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given. Remember, there's 330-some-odd specific messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And out of all of those, Jesus is going to pick one for identifying the Messiah. Ready? Uh, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given but the sign of Jonah the prophet. And here it is. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, 
so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We know in the Apostles' Creed, that's Sheol, that's Hades. When Jesus was crucified and went for three days and three nights down into Hades to minister uh, to, the, to the Old Testament dead, right? And to preach the gospel to them down there so they had a chance. So, uh, amazingly enough, I, I think I've given you this, uh, this verse because this verse comes from Jonah. Here's where what Jesus just quoted as he's making this statement, Jonah 1.17 Here's the text, and the Lord appointed a great fish, this is the actual Jonah story, a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. So how long did Messiah have to be in the depths of the earth? How long did Messiah have to be in the grave? How long did he have to be in the tomb? How long? Write it in, here's your blank, three days and three nights. So it's as plain as the nose on your face, right? For anyone to be the Messiah, he would have to be the, in the grave for three days and three nights. And I want you to notice something. This prophecy was so significant that Jesus used it as the only sign that the Jews were going to pay attention to for them to see the sign that he was God's son. But the Friday crucifixion creates an immediate problem. You may have thought of this. So let's start by understanding the Hebrew day, right? Let's unpack the term Yom, right? Yom Kippur, for instance, right? The, the term day, it actually has three meanings in the Hebrew. Number one, write it in, it can mean 24 hours. So that's what, how it's used when it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Sabbath Yom, that means from sundown on, uh, on one day till sundown on the other, uh, the next you are to do no work, okay? That's the, that's uh, the 24-hour day. The second usage is the light part. Here's your blank. The light part of the 24 hours in contrast to night, right? So the term yom may mean daytime as opposed to nighttime. So it can be a 24-hour day or it can be the light part of a day, meaning daytime, basically. And number three, the term yom can be, be used uh, to mean an age. So for instance, the day of the Lord probably includes all the way from the beginning of the tri tribulation all the way through the end of the millennium, more than a thousand years. The, the day of the Lord, the age of the Lord, the yom of the Lord. Also, <coughs> think about this one. <clears throat> God said to Adam, in the day, yom, that you eat from the tree, you surely shall die. Well, have you ever realized, thought about it that, wait a second, he, he lives, we know from the scripture, he lives almost a thousand years after the day he eats from the tree. He didn't die that day. Oh, yes, he did. Because yom can mean an age in Hebrew. So he went from the day of life and perfection into the day or age or yom of death and sin. Right? He went from the age of sin to the, uh, the age of life to the age of death. The yom, the, the yom, the day of life to the day of death. Okay, so the Hebrew word for day can mean three different things. But the meaning of day in the prophecy about the sign of Jonah is very clear because Jesus specified three days, yoms, and three nights. Write it in. Here it is. The Hebrew day in the 
in spring in Israel around Easter time, okay, ready, is generally around 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. These are your blanks. And the night, the Hebrew night, is about 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. It's almost in the springtime. It's just about perfectly 12 hours of, of day and 12 hours of night. So, so let's do the math based upon the assumption that church tradition is correct about Good Friday. Okay, so we're, we're now doing the math, assuming that Good Friday, the church tradition, is right. Write it in. If you say Jesus was in the tomb on Friday, and then Saturday, and then Sunday, that gives you, here's your blank, gives you three days. Three daylight yoms, right? But as we just read, the prophecy isn't just three days. It's three days and three nights. And any way you cut it, write it in. You only get Friday night and Saturday night. Write it in. That's two nights. But the Messiah must exactly fulfill the prophecy. And in fact, the problem is actually much worse than this. It's not three days. It's actually only two days. Notice when they turn now to John. So Matthew is the first gospel. John is the fourth and last of the Gospels, John chapter 20, and look at the first verse. You'll see here something you may have never seen in the text before. Look at this now, verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. So it's Resurrection Sunday, okay? Ready? Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. So from our perspective, it's late Saturday night, early Sunday morning while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Okay, so think about it. Jesus rose Sunday morning before sunup, because Mary Magdalene shows up at the tomb, and it's still dark. The sun has not yet risen. It's not dawn yet. It's not daytime yet. So she shows up, and the, the resurrection has already occurred. And this creates a big problem. Here's your blanks. Here's a big problem. Sunday doesn't count for a day, right? Notice back up above where we said Friday day, Saturday day, Sunday day, assuming we could count Sunday daytime. Well, we can't. So let's count again. Here is your blank. Friday day, Saturday day is two days, two day times, right? And Friday night and Saturday night is two nights. So has this ever bothered you? In fact, when you do the math and do the hours, it's way less than 48 hours if it's Friday afternoon when he was crucified. Um, have you ever been asked about this discrepancy? Mo most of us are just evangelistic, as we say. Eh, you know, we kind of, well, it's two and a half because it's three days and two nights and we round up to three. So there you have it. Now, um, now that we've raised the questions, let's look at the implications. This isn't trivial. Upon this single issue, the Messiahship of Jesus of Nazareth can be discounted. Remember, he said, I'll give you one sign. The Son of Man has to be in the depths of the earth, in the grave, three days and three nights. So, look at Luke 24, 44. This is a really powerful statement by Jesus here. It's so important, I've, I've given you blanks to put in the text. Here is the biblical text. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things, there's the blank, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Got that? 
Every single thing has to be perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. Otherwise, he's not the Messiah. So any would-be Messiah can't drop the ball on even one prophecy or he's disqualified. So since we know for sure that Christ's resurrection occurred on Sunday, the first day of the week, um, the crucifixion must have occurred on Thursday afternoon for the sign of Jonah to be fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. So here's the requirement. We've done the math of if church tradition is right, right? We've ended up with two days and two nights if church tradition is right. Here's the problem. Here's the requirement. Write it in. Thursday, Friday, Saturday gives you three days. And Thursday, Friday, Saturday gives you three nights. And here's the scriptural conclusion. Here's your blanks. If Jesus is the Messiah, let this sink in. If Jesus is the Messiah, he had to be crucified on Thursday. Now, based on the mandate that Jesus had to be crucified on Thursday, let's go through the Passover week of AD 32, and then we'll ultimately come back to see if it's in fact true if Jesus was actually crucified on Thursday so that he is the Jewish Messiah. Um, as we begin, let's start with some historical facts about the calendar, or in fact, calendars. Ready? Here's your blank. Everyone agrees that the Passover feast was on Thursday night of Passion Week. Everybody agrees. I'll show you on the grid in just a minute. There's no confusion that the Passover feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread that week, was on Thursday night. Next, Roman historians agree that the historical window for Jesus' crucifixion is A.D. 29, here's your blank, through A.D. 33. That's the historical window, both from um, Christian uh, historians, but also secular historians of the time, A.D. 29 through A.D. 32. Right? That's the historical window. And here's your third uh, set of blanks. Within this window, A.D. 32, is the only week in which the Passover feast happened on Thursday night. So I'll do a lot more justification of this, but this is one of the main reasons why we know it's A.D. 32. Because it's the only historically plausible week uh, for Passion Week, and it's the only one within that, uh, that five-year period that uh, where the Passover feast was on Thursday night. So you should have a, um, you'll really need this. Uh, it looks like this, and I've got it, um, I've got it up here. Uh, and I want to just show you, uh, uh, so that we'll all be, you're going to see this a whole bunch uh, in the next month uh, during Thursology. And I want to show you now where we've gotten so far. So notice here, it's, this is midnight and 6 a.m., and 12 noon, and 6 p.m., and midnight, okay? So this is 24 hours, and this is the daytime, 6a to 6p, and 6p through midnight back to the next day till 6 a.m. is nighttime, okay? <coughs> so here we are on Sunday, Nissan 10, April 6th, A.D. 32, right? And what happens that day is Passover begins and the lambs are taken out of the flock. And on that very same day is Palm Sunday, triumphal entry. Jesus and all the Passover lambs are all being observed now. And guess what? That happens through 
Nisan, remember at sundown, it becomes Nisan 11 because the day starts in Hebrew at sundown, not at midnight like for us. You go into Nisan 11, into Monday, all the observation is still occurring and Jesus comes in and, and is observed and is teaching the word and making himself known. And then you get into Nisan 12 and Tuesday uh, on, on the way we think of it. And Jesus and the lambs are still being observed. And then Nisan 13 into Wednesday. And here you come to the end of the observation and you go into what is called the day of preparation. Okay, now remember, the day starts when the sun goes down. So Nissan 14 begins here, the day of preparation, which means the day that they're going to take the unblemished lamb out of the flock, and they're going to slay it, and they're going to roast it in preparation for the Passover feast that happens after sundown on Nissan 15 on Thursday. Okay, so on Everyone agrees, no one, no one disagrees that Thursday was when the Passover feast happened in that week. So, AD 32 was definitely the week of the Passion because it's the only one within the historical time frame with the Passover feast on Thursday. And it's important to establish this dating for several reasons, and we'll be coming back to that in the next several weeks. And now let's turn to the issue of the problems with, a, with, with actually establishing that the crucifixion was on Thursday. You got a lot, when you have church tradition against you, you got an uphill climb, right? So we've seen that the crucifixion had to be on Thursday for Jesus to be Messiah. But the problem is there are things that make it look like he was crucified on Friday, and this is, of course, how Good Friday as a tradition got started in the first place. So to start unpacking the issues related to the Thursday crucifixion, let's start dealing with the Sabbath that occurred in the Passover week of AD 32. So you're in John chapter 20. Look at John chapter 19 near the end of that chapter. Look at verse 30 in John chapter 19. Verse 30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, here's Jesus on the cross, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Verse 31, the Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that the legs might be broken and that they may be taken away, the bodies, of course. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. So notice the explicit information that we get about a seemingly trivial issue, but it is not trivial as we'll see. Ready? The Jews, here's your blank. The Jews asked Pilate to break the legs of those who were crucified so the bodies could be buried before the Sabbath. So here's a question. When's the Jewish Sabbath? Friday sundown through Saturday sundown, right? Thus, the traditional view is that Jesus was crucified on Friday afternoon, right before the Sabbath began. So let's do some additional verification that the scriptures clearly establish that the crucifixion took place right before the Sabbath began, right? 
on the afternoon before sundown when the Sabbath began. Turn back to Mark. Mark's the second gospel, Mark chapter 15. We're going to see this, and again, the establishment of this problem is important so that we then understand really how much difficulty we're in before we see over the next few weeks the resolution of this. Mark chapter 15, verse 37. Mark 15, 37, here it is. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So here's Jesus on the cross and he dies. And look at verse 42, the next paragraph. And when evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So he breathes his last, he's on the cross, and it's clearly the afternoon right before the Sabbath. So Jesus died then. Sure sounds like Friday afternoon, doesn't it? Now turn to Luke with me. So we're in Mark. Turn to the next book to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And we will see again this pattern. It's so well established. Luke 23, look at verse 52. Then... The man went to Pilate, so this is Joseph of Arimathea, right? And he asked for the body of Jesus. So Jesus is dead. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb, cut in the rock, so uh, where no one had ever lain. Verse 54, and it was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Verse 55, now the women who had come out to him from Galilee, followed after, saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. They're getting ready to embalm Jesus. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Given these repetitive pronouncements, it seems like it must have been Friday afternoon, right? Just like church tradition teaches. So we sure seem to be in a quandary. For Jesus to be the Messiah, he had to be crucified on Thursday, but these biblical texts and centuries of church tradition sure seem to make it look like he was crucified on Friday. And in the next several weeks, we're going to see how biblical resolution of this quandary will teach us how bad assumptions can send us down the wrong path. This is how people end up saying that the scripture has lots of contradictions. The fact is, Scripture contains a lot of apparent contradictions until we do our homework and look at all the pertinent passages and make sure our assumptions are correct. And then when we do that, every single apparent contradiction is resolved and is no longer a contradiction. So as we begin to work on the resolution of this apparent dilemma, let me tell you what the fundamental issue was that led to the problem of Good Friday. At the church councils that you may not know occurred in the third and fourth centuries actually, when many of the traditions of the church were established, there wasn't a single Jewish believer who was a member of these councils. They were all Gentiles. So a whole bunch of Gentile believers assumed that they knew all that they needed to know. And guess what? Of course, they were thinking like Gentiles when they needed to be thinking like Jews. They needed someone who really knew the Old Testament and who really understood the Jewish holidays and who really knew the intricacies of the Torah's commandments related to the Passover. 
So here's where to begin to unravel the complexities of this issue. Turn with me all the way back to Leviticus. Yep, back to the Torah in the first five books of the Bible. It's actually the third book of the Bible to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23, and you're going to see how powerful the book of Leviticus is as we uh, unfold all of this. Uh, verse 1, chapter 23 of Leviticus, The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim in, in, as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. Ready? For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. Okay, so here's your blank. Write it in. Ready? This passage establishes the weekly Sabbath. All right? Now look at verse 4. These are the appointed times of the Lord's holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed, appointed for them. And now it gives the dates of the feasts, the festivals. Ready? Verse 5. In the first month, on the 14th day, right? This is the month Nisan, which we're already seeing on our grid. At twilight is the Lord's Passover. Then on the 15th day of the same month, there is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation and you shall not do any laborious work. Here's the blank. Ready? This passage establishes the high Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also known as the Passover Feast. And this gives us an important Hebrew calendar fact. Ready? Fill in your blanks. <coughs> the high Sabbath isn't tied to a day of the week like the weekly Sabbath is. You see, from year to year, the Feast of Unleavened Bread moves around to different days of the week. But the weekly Sabbath is always Friday, sundown, uh, right, until Saturday, sundown. Excuse me while I get a drink here. My allergies are, hor are horrendous this week. <coughs> So turn with me now, um, back to Matthew chapter 27, Matthew, the first gospel. And I hope you're getting used to this in Thursology. Hopefully I'm not reading a bunch of theological books, right? Or just my own notes. We're working all the time uh, from the text, from the biblical text. So chapter 27 of Matthew, and look at this with me, verse 59 of Matthew 27. Verse 59 of Matthew 27. And when it was evening, there came a rich man, so Jesus is now dead, named Joseph of Arimathea, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. Verse 60, and laid it in his own tomb, which he had honed from the from the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Verse 61, and Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Verse 62, now on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. So let's stop for a minute and think about this. 
Everyone agrees that Thursday was the preparation day when the Passover lambs were slain that year, right? Okay, so again, Wednesday is the 13th of Nisan. Thursday at sundown, it turns to the 14th of Nisan and it starts the preparation day, meaning on this day, in this week, Thursday, Wednesday night into Thursday, you're getting the preparation of the Passover lambs. Take them out of the flock, slay them, their blood is shed for sin, and then they are roasted, getting prepared for the night, Nisan 15, when it turns into the 15th and the Passover feast happens. Okay? Now, verse 62 says specifically that we move to the next day after the day of preparation. That's exactly what it says. And what's the day after the preparation day? Friday. Okay, so here's what verse 62 shows. Write it in. Since the preparation day was Thursday, it's now Friday. Notice the day after the preparation day. And Jesus was dead yesterday, back in verse 59, on Thursday. But if Jesus died on Thursday, how could it be right before the Sabbath? And to answer this, let's go back to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. So you're in Matthew, turn through Mark to Luke chapter 23. And we're going to see this again. And uh, it's going to start falling together. Luke 23, verse 52. We just read this. And the man went to Pilate, Joseph of Arimathea, and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth. And he laid it in a tomb into the, into the rock where no one had ever lain. And, ready, it was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Notice, it was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. And here's the key question. And unfortunately, if a Jew had been there at the councils, they would have cleared all this up easily. Which Sabbath? The high Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And when did the high Sabbath happen in that week? Guess when? Not on Friday evening, but on Thursday evening. Notice, in this week, Nissan 10, is when all the lambs and Jesus are taken out to be observed. And they are observed and observed. And then on Wednesday, they're coming in to Nissan 14. And as they come into Nissan 14 is the day when all the lambs will be slain. And when the lamb will be slain Thursday afternoon. And then notice what happens. It turns into Nissan 15, which is the high Sabbath. So on Thursday evening, when the sun went down, it was a Sabbath. It wasn't the weekly Sabbath. That's the only one that we Gentiles know about unless we really dig into this. But notice, here you have, we'll be back to this repeatedly, Friday is a Sabbath and Saturday is a Sabbath in that week. Friday being the high Sabbath, Saturday being the weekly Sabbath. So now you're starting to see some of the resolution. We're going to need to come at this in a bunch of different ways, though, because unfortunately, traditions die really hard. So this fact, the fact that Thursday night began a Sabbath that week. Of course, Friday was a Sabbath because it's always a Sabbath on Friday night. But that week, 
Thursday night started a Sabbath is explicitly taught in John. So you're in Luke, turn one book to the right again, back to John, John chapter 19, near the end of the 19th chapter of John. And look at this, verse 30, John chapter 19. When Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he's on the cross here, he said, it is finished, right? He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So Jesus has just died on the cross. You ready? Verse 31, the Jews therefore, because it was the day of preparation, when? Thursday, when all the other lambs are dying too. Because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies should not remain on the cross on Sabbath. And look at the parenthetical statement. If you don't have your Bible out, you should get your Bible. For that Sabbath was a high day. Joseph asked Pilate that the legs might be broken. Excuse me. They asked Pilate that the legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So here is great. Look at the key concept from John chapter 19. Number one, the Sabbath that they hurriedly wanted to avoid desecrating wasn't the weekly Sabbath. This wasn't Friday afternoon getting ready for the weekly Sabbath. But here's your blank. But the high Sabbath that began on Thursday evening in that week. Okay, so now pay attention. <coughs> this gives us key concept number two. Breaking Christ's legs to try to get him to die before the Sabbath would have been irrelevant if he had been crucified on Friday. Why? Think about this. Because it was already a Sabbath. Notice in this week, Friday all day was the high Sabbath of Passover. It was the day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And notice, amazingly, there would have been, it would have been irrelevant on Friday afternoon to scurry him into the grave to try to get him in the grave before Sabbath started because Friday afternoon was already a Sabbath in that week. So on the one hand, it seems that Jesus was crucified on Friday, right? That's what tradition teaches. But on the other hand, he couldn't have been crucified on Friday. What a quandary. So as we close, this week, I'm going to be a really bad teacher. Rather than leaving you with an application as I usually do, I'm actually going to leave all of us with a dilemma. All right? And, and I'm going to set up this dilemma, and I'm going to do it this way. We've clearly established that everyone agrees that the Passover feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was on Thursday night during Passion Week. No one argues with that. Let me show you one more time, right? And look on your grid. Everyone agrees that it was Nissan 14, Thursday afternoon, when the observation was complete and all the lambs were ready to be taken out to be proven unblemished and slain, roasted, and be prepared for Thursday night's Passover feast, right? And no one disputes that. That week, that for sure was that, right? Okay, so thus, the Last Supper, when Jesus ate the Passover with his disciples, must have also been on Thursday night, right? Because after all, didn't Jesus eat Passover with his disciples? Wasn't that what the Last Supper was? If that's the case, then Jesus must have been crucified on Friday. If the Last Supper was at the same time as the Passover feast and Jesus ate the Passover with them at the Last Supper, then obviously it was the next day on Friday that he was crucified. So 
Turn back with me to Luke. One, one book back to the left. Luke 22. Again, you're going to probably want to come back to this repeatedly, many times maybe, um, uh, because, again, tradition dies hard, and, uh, and we as Gentiles don't think this way, but this stuff is going to be incredible. You're going to see the applications as the weeks build. It's going to be incredible. Luke chapter 22, verse 13. Look with me there. And they departed and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. This is where Jesus has told them, go to get the donkey and all that kind of stuff and meet me at the upper room. And it says, and the disciples, right, they went away and they prepared Passover. There it is. Verse uh, 14. And when the hour had come, he reclined at table. So this is the Last Supper. And the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So what night was the Passover feast in AD 32 Passion Week? It was on Thursday night. And here's Jesus saying, I want to eat the Passover with you. There's the blank. Ready? What night was the Passover feast? Look again. Right there, Thursday night. And when did all the other Passover lambs die? Here's your blank. Thursday afternoon. And here's what I leave you with. It's the big dilemma. If Jesus was still alive on Thursday night, important, I'll read this twice because it's so long. If Jesus was still alive on Thursday night, after all the lambs had been slain, according to the command of Moses, then Jesus didn't fulfill the prophecies of the Passover lamb, and Jesus isn't the Messiah. Let me give the big dilemma one more time. If Jesus was, was still alive on Thursday night, having Passover at the Last Supper on Thursday night, if that's when the, 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 the Last Supper was, right? If Jesus was still alive on Thursday night, after the lambs had been slain according to the command of Moses, then Jesus didn't fulfill the prophecies of the Passover lamb, and Jesus isn't the Messiah. So let me say it one more time, our dilemma. If Jesus ate the Last Supper on Thursday night, then he didn't die when all of the other lambs died in Israel. The lambs all died on Thursday afternoon. But Jesus seems to have eaten the Passover on Thursday night. So this week I'm leaving us with the tension of a dilemma that appears to compromise the messianic claims of Jesus. Church tradition teaches it was Friday night. Ready? Friday night. Friday night. But what we've seen is, unless he was crucified on Thursday, he doesn't meet these prophecies. So I'm going to leave us squirming because we need to be aware of a sloppy approach to the truth claims of Christ, how it compromises our ability to defend the faith. I hope this will encourage all of us to study, to show ourselves approved, and test our ability to give an account for the hope that's within us. So I leave you with this question, and then uh, we're going to pray, and then I think I will actually answer the question that came in tonight in the chat. Um, I'll leave you with a question. Are you happy to slide along in life with your guide being what you hear from others, and what you hear from TV preachers, and what you hear from church tradition? Or are you ready to dig into the scriptures and to stand on the word as your sole source of authority? Are you really willing to protest as the classic Protestant should? Are you really ready to protest that my only source of authority 
is the word. As we continue to study the resolutions of the Good Friday dilemma in the next several weeks, I challenge all of us to use this time as a time that we recommit to diving deeply into God's word.